You're listening. You're listening to a University of Kentucky. University of Kentucky. College of Arts and Sciences podcast. Her quest of understanding dark matter led Susan Gardner, a professor in the Department of Physics, to discover something completely unexpected, a visible wave in the Milky Way galaxy. In this podcast, Gardner elaborates upon this discovery, its relation to her research, and its origins within curiosity itself. I'm Susan Gardner, and I'm a professor of physics at the University of Kentucky. How did you become interested in physics? Actually, when I was a kid, I loved all science. I would like build terracotta dinosaurs and paint dissections of plants. And as I learned more how you could use science to describe the world around you, and I think in the evolution of that interaction between thought and nature, then I think that physics is the ultimate place because it tempts in its most foundational way to explain the nature of things that we see around us. And so I think that I liked all science, I liked trying to understand the natural world, and I evolved into physics as I got older. What is your primary research focus? I would say that I'm particularly interested in trying to discover whether there are limitations to the standard model of particle interactions. My particular interest is in studying the nature of fundamental symmetries at low energies in hopes of finding dynamics beyond the standard model. What is the standard model of particle interactions and how does that play a role in your research? So the standard model uh, says that there are a certain set of basic ingredients they're called fermions. They have very definite, carefully constricted interactions that are based on a particular internal symmetries that they carry. So the standard model comes from a vision of a particular kind of set of symmetries that control the interactions of these fermions. So this grand set of interactions explain three of the four basic forces, electromagnetic, weak, and strong interactions, with one being left out in the cold by design. So gravity is not included in the standard model. The standard model completely works for everything we've ever measured in the laboratory, but it leaves questions unanswered, things that just doesn't address. It doesn't include gravity. And we think, gee, you know, I mean, why should it be left out in the cold? Shouldn't we be able to build a fundamental description of nature that built all the forces together? And the standard model can't do that. And also it has no answer for what dark matter and dark energy could be. And so there have been any number of different ways that people have tried to understand ways of going beyond the standard model that could potentially allow us to address all the questions that aren't answered. But no one ever guaranteed that you'd be able. Who said that theoretical physics was supposed to answer all the questions? Maybe it just can't. And so we don't know yet. Ultimately, if you don't push the envelope of knowledge, it's very hard to say how you discover new things. You're going back to the drawing board and rethinking, and you can get surprised, and the idea is to allow yourself to be surprised. How does your research influence your teaching? Actually, I think there's a lot of interplay between the two, because especially if you teach courses that aren't your usual want, sometimes you'll just be thinking in different directions because of your teaching, and that can help your research. 
So I'm working on a project now that I'm not sure I would have thought about it this way if I hadn't been teaching my senior quantum mechanics course, actually. And it just, you just wake up one day and you see a connection you didn't think about before and, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, it, I, so I would say that, um, so the teaching can actually help the research and then the research, you know, I think it's so important to realize that everything we teach was more or less someone's invention once and we come to a perspective of things but there is series the perspective we finally teach is a series of evolutionary steps that the way we've thought about things with time has slowly changed until we finally graduate to this grand understanding in an article that came out last year it was hypothesized that something crashed into the milky way can you talk about that and your contribution to this research Oh, this was super fun. I was on a sabbatical at Fermilab, and so Fermilab is, is a, normally a high-energy physics uh, research center, but they have a big component which is invested in particle astrophysics. So they're recognizing that there is the, potentially a very deep connection between particle physics and dark matter, dark energy. So we all want to know what that is. What we haven't done yet, what we haven't established yet, is ever detected anything that could look like dark matter in a terrestrial laboratory. People try. Well, there have been discussions about whether the astrophysics was really right, whether these theoretical ideas of the velocity distribution and the matter distribution was right. And so we were discussing this at Fermilab, and I said, well, guys, why are we arguing about this? We know that dark matter and ordinary matter both interact via gravity in a completely ordinary way. This is more or less an assumption to get dark matter, that gravity is just what we always thought. And so why don't we just look at the local stars and see what impact dark matter has on them, on their number distribution and their velocities, and then we'll be able to learn more about local dark matter, and that'll help us with the interpretation of these experiments. So the first step with that analysis ended up in the discovery of something completely unexpected we found a vertical wave in the stars. Let me tell you about the wave, and then we'll talk about the crashing part. Okay, so what's definite is the observed effect. What's not definite is its cause. Okay, so the observed effect is we look in the plane of the Milky Way. Our own Milky Way is almost razor thin compared to its extent in the horizontal plane. Okay, so it's very thin with respect to how how to say, how, what's its diameter is. Not so bad to call it a pancake. Okay. And so what we did was we looked through the thickness of the pancake. And, you know, in principle, if it really were a pancake and we split in the middle, we'd say, well, we expect just as much pancake above and below where we made our cut. And interestingly, as we looked at the stars making up the pancake, the galactic disk, as we go up versus down, that they weren't symmetric. And when we compared the number above versus number below and took the difference over the sum, that asymmetry, north versus south, presented itself as a vertical wave. And so interestingly, people think that something called a dwarf galaxy could actually have been disrupted in its rotation about the galactic center through the galactic disk. And 
so we've seen evidence of that, that some dwarf galaxies will be split upon into stellar streams. And so we think the very heaviest one for which we've seen the stream of stars, it's called the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, might have been the culprit in making our wave. So that's the whole collision business. I would say that the wave is something we definitely saw. We've now confirmed it in two different data sets. Okay, and we, we confirmed the effect, so I believe it really is there. And then we're still there's still ongoing observations that could be done to try to rule in or rule out possible scenarios. But personally, I think the dwarf galaxy interaction with the galactic disk is the most likely. So yes, the galactic collision, in, certainly in the specific discussion of Sagittarius, gave rise to a stellar stream, and we found it. And it's quite possible, as our ability to study the Milky Way improves with time, we may very well discover many more stellar streams, and not just from the really big guys. So how surprised were you to find that there was a wave in the galaxy? Very much so. It took us a long time to write the first paper because we kept thinking we were wrong, that we'd done just some, something wrong. And so we, we, we sort of went back to scratch several times and redid it several times to try to remove all force, false forces of north-south uh, north asymmetry. And in our final analysis, I think that we did, I, I mean, I, I think we were able to sharpen the final, it, it was very, what was very interesting about it that made it look like the basic conclusion was healthy was that we went through all these possible, what they call systematic effects that could fake the asymmetry. We sharpened the analysis point by point to try to see if they had an impact and they made it sharper rather than worse. Fascinating. That's why I think it's really there. So I think that's most of the questions that I have, but would you have anything that you would like to add? I guess I want to say that I really have been engaged in curiosity-driven research, and I think that it's so essential, it's so important, because many of the new technologies we enjoy come originally because people were curious about how things basically worked. And it's hard to make the connection between the curiosity-driven and the practical, more efficient. But just because the connection, we can't always say where things will lead, doesn't mean that the initial journey isn't also crucial and actually essential to the national interest. So I just wanted to say that, a vote for curiosity-driven research. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of Physics for making this podcast possible.